Good morning, Woodland Hills. My name, oh, people even said my name. My name is Dan Kent. I am a teaching pastor here. I am also the church uh, dream analyst and uh, sandwich, sandwich advisor. Those are, we have very specific roles in this church. Uh, well, you know, um, you know, I don't know if you celebrate Halloween. Uh, most people don't actually celebrate Halloween. They just celebrate candy. Uh, and I don't really have much to say other than just an announcement that Barbara and I gave it some thought And we really want to give something special this year to trick-or-treaters. So we decided that this year we're going to hand out fun-sized peanut M&M wrappers. So, so yes. (laughs) All right, it's time to get serious. It's time to get serious. Uh, We have spent, this is amazing. Last week we finished our cross-examination series. And we spent 24 weeks on five verses. And that's pretty impressive. And now we're starting a new series where we're going to do the opposite. We have five weeks to cover about 22 verses. I don't know how we're going to do it, but uh, I, I'm optimistic. I think, I think we can do it. Uh, but the cross-examination series looked at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And today, I'm kicking off the Two Ways uh, series. And the Two Ways series covers Matthew 7, chapter seven or verse 7 to uh, verse 29. Now, if you're paying close attention there, you might have noticed that we skipped a verse. <laughs> uh, Matthew 7, 6, uh, uh, I'm skipping. I'm not going to even touch this verse. And this is the verse that says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample under them uh, and and they may turn and tear you to pieces. And um, it's a tricky verse because it comes right after Jesus just gets done saying, don't judge people. And then right away, he says to not give your pearls to pigs and to dogs. And it sounds like Jesus might be judging people here. Uh, and, and so how do you explain that? And I looked at this, and the first thing I said is, this is senior pastor material right here. So <laughs> <laughs> I am kicking the can down the road. And uh, no, we, we are going to look at this verse next week and maybe the week after that as well. But today, I just want to get going on the two ways uh, series. And so that's what I want to do. Now, a lot of times when we do a sermon, we will take a verse, maybe even like the one I just talked about, and we will just zoom in on this verse. And we will look at all of the Greek words. We will look at all of the iotas used. I mean, everything. And we will just zoom way in. And a lot of times, you can find some really great treasure when you look really carefully at a verse. But then other times, it helps to zoom out and see a whole section of text, and you can find treasure there as well. And that's what I want to do today, is I want to zoom out a little bit on this section of text that we're about to explore over the next few weeks. And when we look at this text, uh, you'll, you'll see that Jesus is tapping into what's called the two ways tradition. And so I want to talk a little bit about what the two ways tradition is before I get to what Jesus says. Now, to do this, there's a lot here, and uh, there's too much here to talk about. And so what I want to do is I want to do this like, I don't know if you ever watched movies in the 80s and the 90s, but they would have these montages where like some uh, uh, music would play, and some protagonist, the hero, has to get in shape for the big event. And so uh, there would be this music, and you'd see all these quick scenes of him exercising, eating raw eggs, stuff like that, you know, and then at the end, he was done. So he starts off as 
Philip Seymour Hoffman and he comes out as Brad Pitt at the other end. And that's usually how it worked. And so that's what I want to do here is I want to kind of do a montage of the two ways tradition that you find in the Old Testament and in early Jewish teaching. Uh, You'll have to just imagine the inspiring rock and roll hairband music in your head as I go through this. But that's my goal. So the two ways tradition, it starts right away in Genesis, like Instantly, when the, when the Bible starts, you see the two ways tradition. You see Adam and Eve in the garden, and God gives them a choice between two ways. You can either eat of the tree of life, or you can eat of the tree that leads to death. Uh, and then just shortly after that in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, God is speaking through Moses, and he says, Today I have placed before you life and prosperity or death and destruction. So you see those two ways that are set before God's people. And what's fascinating about the Deuteronomy passage, this is verse 15 that we're looking at, but if you read the 14 verses that lead up to this, it's just beautiful. Uh, Moses kind of sets up the command. He kind of prepares the people right away, and he knows his people, and he says right away, now listen, Don't start asking questions like, uh, oh, who's going to do this for us? Don't think that this is something that you'll do in heaven. Don't think that God is going to do this for you. What I am about to command to you, this is within your grasp. This is within your reach. You can do this. And then he gives the command. And I just just love that. Um, and, uh, And then you find the two ways in Psalm also. Right away at the beginning of Psalm, Psalm 1, 6, uh, David says this. God guards the path of the righteous, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Jeremiah 21.8 takes on the same two ways tradition, but here you find some different language that Jeremiah uses. He says, I am setting before you today the way of life or the way of death. And you find other cases like that, especially in the prophets. But then you also find between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you've got this apocryphal text, this early Jewish writings that uh, uh, some uh, Bibles you can find this in, it's called the apocryphal section. Uh, And and you find this in there. You you find God reflecting uh, in the book of 2 Enoch. He's reflecting on his creation story. And he says this, I called the man Adam and I gave him free will. And I pointed out to him the two ways, light or truth and darkness. And then later in uh, the apocryphal writing, it says this, and I love this. This is in Sirach. He says, I have placed before you today life and death, blessings and curses, fire and water. Reach out your hand for whichever you choose. And that fire and water language, I just, I really love that. Then, just a couple, few decades before Jesus arrives on the scene, there's this community called the Qumran community. And a lot of scholars think that they were uh, probably Jewish Essenes, which is sort of a mystical kind of Jewish sect. And, and a lot of scholars think that they were trying to live out the prophecy of uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3, where Isaiah says that there will be a voice calling out in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Lord. Now, we find out later on that it's actually John the Baptist who fulfills this prophecy, but the Qumran community were following this idea of the two ways, and they were trying to prepare in the wilderness this way of the Lord. Then you have Jesus, which I'll come back to, and then you have the early church. And in the early church, you have, um, uh, so these are the writers like right after the apostles, the people who wrote the New Testament, when they were kind of no longer on the scene, you have got these first leaders after that. And they talk about the paths of light and darkness. 
And they talk about the dangers of double-mindedness, where you try to go down both paths at the same time. You want the benefits of the path of destruction, but you know that the path of righteousness is good. And so you try to do both, and that just ultimately leads to destruction. And then the last thing that is added there, and I think it's in the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, and it's uh, this idea that each of us have an angel of righteousness and an angel of wickedness that try to lobby us down one path or the other. And I think this is where the kind of cliche cartoon where the little angel and the demon on the shoulders, I think this is where that comes from. So that's the two ways tradition. And within that, Jesus sort of taps into this tradition and he uses this to finish the Sermon on the Mount. And like I said, I want to do like a broad look here. So I, I want to look at all of the sections. There's five sections. And I just pulled this off of the titles given in my Bible. So it's probably similar in your Bible as well. But the sections that, that Jesus kind of covers at the end of his sermon are this. Ask, seek, knock. And this is where uh, Jesus says, he makes this very bold claim that whatever you ask for, the Lord will provide. And he says, like, if you're a, if you're a parent and if your kid asks you for a fish, you're not going to give them a snake. You're going to give them what they want. Uh, and then after that, uh, Jesus talks about the narrow and the wide gate, the true and the false prophets, the true and the false disciples, the wise and the foolish builders. And you see that list and you can kind of see those two ways there. Jesus is saying you could go one of these two directions on all of these different categories. Now, there's so much to say about this, and, uh, and we're going to talk a lot about each of these specific instances, but what I want to ask is just two questions right away. And that is, uh, the first one is this. It makes sense when you see all of those, you see a lot of the two ways thing. Except for the ask, seek, knock. That one doesn't offer two ways. It's, it just makes this bold claim that God is going to give you what you want. Why is that included in this two ways section? Um, well, first of all, let me just, right off the cuff, say this, because this might be on your minds. This is a, a, a very bold statement that Jesus makes about what God will do. That when you ask for a fish, God's going to give you a fish. And I don't know about you, but I haven't experienced that type of customer service with my prayers. <laughs> I, 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 if that's exactly how it was supposed to go, then my friend Jessica would still be with us. And I would not have a skin condition. And I would wake up to that solar-powered yacht that I've been thinking about, you know? And so that's a problem. It's something that we have to look at. And it's definitely senior pastor material. So we're going to kick that one down. And we're going to cover that next week as well. So we, we will look at that. But what I want to talk about is how does this apply to the two ways tradition? And I think it applies like this. What Jesus is saying is he's promising that if you go down the right path, if you go down the path of light, the path of righteousness, you will be rewarded. Down the path toward God gives you what you really, really want. In other words, there is ultimately no reason to go down the other path. Because I think what Jesus is saying here is that if we don't trust that God is going to provide us the things that we want and need, it's going to be really hard to persist down this very difficult path. And so he's saying right away before he talks about the two ways, it's worth it. It's worth it. You, you have to start the journey with this trust that it will ultimately be worth it. You might not get the solar-powered yacht, but you will get what you really, truly want. Um, and so that's it. The second question is this. When you look at the world, man, 
There are so many people and there's so much diversity and people live such wildly different lives. And it seems like people thrive, they have families, they have different careers, they have different personalities. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail. And they succeed and fail in in a variety of ways. And it seems like when you just look at the world, it seems like, man, there's a lot more than just two ways. It seems like there are millions of ways. And uh, isn't it maybe a little simplistic to say that there are just two ways? Uh, and, And to that, I would say, no, I don't think so. I don't think it's too simplistic. Because I think what Jesus and the Jewish tradition here is saying is that what lies beneath the complexity and the diversity, underneath that that complex variety of lives that we see, there is sort of this simple binary beneath it all. There is this simple binary under everything that we experience. And that binary, a binary is just one of two ways, that binary is that we can either move toward God or away from God. We can either grow in faithfulness or our faithfulness can atrophy. And so underneath all of the noise is this simple directional binary. And related to that, it also means, if that's true, if there really is this simple binary underneath everything, that means that every moment of our lives, there is this persistent invitation for us to be moving closer to God and this potential danger to be moving away from God. And a lot of times we can't hear that invitation just because our lives get so noisy as we're pursuing our careers and the things that we want. And and let's face it, especially in America, we kind of live in this arena of distractions. And and sometimes we're not aware of this invitation that's with us at all times, but it is there. Uh, Greg has talked about, you know, when he goes grocery shopping or if he goes to the park, he, he, he sets before himself this sort of uh, goal uh, to always be doing the most loving thing. And that's, that reflects an awareness that every moment has this invitation. Every moment is an opportunity to move closer to God or farther away from God. And so what Greg will do is he will go to a grocery store and he will bless people while he's there and things like that. Now, so you see Jesus using this two-way sort of model at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where, after two and a half years, we're finally at the end. And it's interesting because other teachers use the two-ways tradition at the beginning of their point. They say, this is what the roads are, and I should tell you now, since you're just starting your journey, these are your options. Jesus puts it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is interesting. And I think the reason for that is because as he's going through the Sermon on the Mount and he's saying all of these complex things, he concludes his sermon with this crystal clear clarity. He ends the sermon with the invitation to go toward God. Uh, And so he, just like other teachers, he's tapping into the same two ways tradition. But he's also different than the other teachers. There's something very unique about how Jesus teaches this two ways. And, and it's interesting to see Matthew in uh, Matthew 7, 29. Uh, he, he's, he's kinda, he, he senses that there's something profound, not just in what Jesus is saying, but in how Jesus is saying it. And, and he's sort of like scratching at this, this epiphany, but he doesn't quite get there. And he says, when, when Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at what he said because he said it with an authority in, in and of himself, 
He said it with an authority in and of himself that the teachers and the scribes did not have. There was something about Jesus himself that made the teaching special. And Matthew doesn't quite get at what that is, but he senses it. And so do the crowds, and they're amazed by it. Jesus later on clears it up. And this is what brings, I think, the two ways teaching to the next level. This is what makes it profound and I think transformational. But in order to understand it, you have to remember this two ways tradition. You have to remember Deuteronomy that there is a choice between life and death and that that the prophets anticipated a way of the Lord. There's two ways, but one of the ways is toward the Lord. And, and the early Jewish teachers who talked about uh, there is a way between light and darkness or truth and falsehood. And then you come to John 14, 6, and Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, all of those binaries, he clicks on each one of those and says, I am that, I am that, I am that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, the way is personal. It's a person. The way is not merely a teaching. The way is a person. The way is relational. It's not merely religious. The way is covenantal. It's not simply conceptual. It has to do with relationship. The way is not Gnostic, it's not Neoplatonic, it's not existential, it's not postmodern, it's not evangelical, it's not exvangelical, democratic, republican, socialist, capitalist, whatever. The way is simply this guy, Jesus. And the more I've thought about that, the more profound it gets. Because as I think about this, if the way was just a teaching, if the way was just a concept, well, what do I know about concepts and teachings and ideas and principles? Here's what I know. I can sit and think about a concept all day long. I can even agree with a concept. And it doesn't mean that I have to do anything. It doesn't force, it doesn't demand any action on my life. But a relationship... A relationship has within it an inherent demand that I actually live and behave in a certain way. Relationship has a demand for action built into it. For example, I could sit and think all day about how much I love my wife, Barbara. And I could sit and just dwell on just how wonderful she is and how glad I am that we're married. But if that's all I do, <laughs> if I don't actually say that I love her or if I don't actually show affection to her or maybe I don't even go home if I'm just thinking about how great she is off on a beach somewhere and I never see her again, the relationship is going to die because a relationship has within it this demand for action. Now, sometimes a person will think of a concept or think of an idea and they will act on it. Uh, but what I've noticed and this is just my own kind of experience. What I've noticed is that when people act on ideas outside of relationship, it almost always devolves into pragmatism. And what I mean by that is pragmatism is just looking at a situation for what I can get out of it. It means looking at how is this going to help me? It's a very self-oriented sort of philosophy of making decisions. And, and because outside of relationship, there is only me. So it makes sense. And so what happens is, is that pragmatically, when I'm trying to figure out what's going to serve me best, well, 
now what happens is I start to choose ideas and concepts that will serve me best, and it kind of creates this cycle, this circle, uh, that reinforces my self-centeredness. But it's interesting because Jesus, over and over again, tells us to die to self, to lose self, not just for the sake of dying to the self, not because you're trying to extinguish the self, but because you're trying to enter into this greater togetherness. And that's very different than the self-oriented, kind of pragmatic, what's-in-it-for-me world that we tend to live in. God is calling us into something special. Now, the what's-in-it-for-me thinking and all the principles and the life hacks and the, the self-help books, man, they can really help you go far in this world. They can. I, I believe that. But I also believe that they can't really help you go far in what God wants to do for this world. They can't help us get very far on their own for what God wants for us. In order to get what God wants for us, I think that we have to somehow figure out how to transcend or go beyond our self-centeredness and our selfishness. And I think that happens in relationship because in my experience, there's nothing more transformational than love relationships. And that's why at the basis of all of Jesus' teaching is this command to love one another and that we are identified as children of God by our love because that's the foundation of the transformation that God wants for us. Even in the Old Testament, uh, we were told, and this is right after in Deuteronomy 30, 15, verse 16, Moses says, Love the Lord your God, then keep his commandments. It all starts with our love. The path is a person. The way is relational because relationship compels change. And I think that we've all experienced this. I, I really do. I think that we know this for ourselves, that there are things that we will do for the people that we love that we might not even do for ourselves. And for instance, I can see uh, I've had experiences with people who are smokers. Smoke one or two packs a day. I remember my grandpa smoked three packs a day. Uh, and, you know, you could tell them, hey, look, uh, did you know this is bad for your lungs? <laughs> and you could show them x-rays of charred lungs, and you could talk about respiratory problems associated with smoking. And what I found is that usually doesn't do much. Now they still smoke, but they just feel bad about it. That's about all that, that happens. Or you take an alcoholic and you say, you know, that's not good for your liver. And you can show them pictures of people with jaundice. And a lot of times, it just doesn't really do much. And, and ultimately, facts and data and pragmatics on a big scale usually fails. But relationships, I have found, don't. Oftentimes, if there's going to be transformation, if there's going to be change, relationships are in my mind, the most profound vehicle toward that. And so many times I've seen people who have quit smoking or who have quit drinking, and you ask them, what, how did you do it? And they'll say things like, I did it for my husband. Or I did it because I want to see my grandkids grow up. We, we, we do things for other people that we love that we're not even willing to do for ourselves. That's the, the transformational power of relationship. That's why it's profound that the way is a person. The way is a relationship. Because how much more transformational will it be when our love for God kind of impedes on our behaviors? How much more transformational will it be when we are in God's presence? Man, I will do whatever I need to do for that love relationship. 
The path is a person, the way is relational. And if you take this idea, this concept, and I encourage you to just dwell on this, and if you take this back to the Sermon on the Mount, I think it really illuminates some things. This is Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I I never knew you. I never knew you. And and that's the punchline. I never knew you. In other words, on one hand, God expects us to obey his will. God expects us to do the things that we're supposed to do. But on the other hand, it doesn't matter what we do if it's not done inside of a relationship. I never knew you. You did great things, but I didn't know you. The relationship is the context through which we should be doing this thing. The path is a person, not a teaching. The path is a way, not a concept. The, the path is, is a relationship. And, and, and so we have to do everything in the context of that relationship. Greg has done such a good job over the years showing this. I, I remember a sermon he did when he wrote the book Benefit of a Doubt where he looked at doubting God outside of relationship with God and doubting God inside of relationship with God. And let me just say, if you're doubting God outside of a relationship, it's not very likely that you're going to find the type of transformation and resolution that you're going to find if you are in relationship with God. And that's true, I think, for everything. Everything that we do should be done in relationship to God. We should be doing our learning, our teaching, our prophesying, our uh, casting out of demons, uh, our, 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 what else do we do? Uh, our praying should be done relationally, not just religiously, not just uh, automatically. Really, the relationship, the right relationship, is what gives everything that we do meaning. And nothing that we do outside of relationship has any ultimate meaning. And I know that this is kind of abstract. And I hope I hope that it's connecting with you like it connected with me this week because it's been very convicting for me. And I'll talk a little bit about that in just a minute. But maybe this seems a little abstract for you, but for me, something that really kind of captured it in a very tangible way is uh, last week Greg was talking about Job. And I started thinking about Job after Greg's sermon and I started looking through the book of Job. And of course, we all know Job is an Old Testament story uh, and Job experienced all of this injustice, all of this pain, all of this suffering, and he was a really good guy. And uh, he became very angry and he had all of these doubts And there's 40 chapters of just kind of wailing and uh, kind of expressing his spiritual chaos and his emotional chaos. And then at the end of Job, he encounters God. And what's fascinating is that when he's with God, all of that spiritual volatility, it just sort of like contracts into this peaceful calm. And Job never gets any of his questions answered. He never gets any of his doubts answered. But he says, I had heard of you, but now I see you. And you are real. And that was enough to just calm all of that volatility. It's relationship with a personal being. That's what brings peace and closure to all of our spiritual and emotional chaoses. Um, Jesus says, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and then he says that you are my hands and feet. And the Apostle Paul says that we are the body of Christ. And so in a way, that means that we are now the way. Or at the very least, we are the way to the way. Jesus is still the way. 
And we are, as Jesus' hands and feet, the way to the way. In fact, in the book of Acts, the church is called the way six times in the book of Acts. And I think that thinking about this, I couldn't stop thinking about our tagline, learning to love together. Learning to be that way together. So that's a lot of stuff. What do we do with all of this? Uh, There's a lot of directions I wanted to go, but I just, I kept coming back to what I was really convicted on as I was doing this this study. And I want to share two things with you that really convicted me. The first thing is that if the way is relational, if the way is a person, that means that I need to know the person of Jesus I have to be able to find that person of Jesus behind my theology, behind my ideas, behind all the cliches that we have about Jesus. I have to find that living, breathing being. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when I read the Bible, I have to learn how to read to find that breathing Jesus behind the text. And and I have to maybe even ask, what does this say about the person of Jesus that this is in here? And I have to learn how to do that. In other words, Jesus is not my theology. Jesus is not my, my Bible interpretation. Jesus is a person. And the goal of Bible interpretation isn't to learn some good theology. It's to know that person on the other side. So that, as the New Testament says, we will recognize his voice. And that when he sees us, he will say, I knew you. When Jesus gives us this story and he says, look, you did some great things, but I never knew you. For me, that really inspires me. Like, I need to be known by, by Jesus. And so that's, that's part of it. And so, you know, it's hard though. I mean, it's hard because we're trying to find this personal being through these things that are not very personal, like through the Bible and uh, things like that. But we have some tools at our disposal. The Bible promises us that we have the Holy Spirit to help illuminate the presence of God. And we have the promise of Jesus that when we are gathered together, Jesus is with us. He is here with us right now. We have the promise that when we gather together, we are the body of Christ. Uh, and, and we have things like imaginative prayer and all sorts of things like that. But I have to admit, and this is where this has been very convicting for me. It's really, really hard. And it's hard for me because I'm the type of guy who likes the security of theology and ideas and concepts. Uh, I, I like being able to just sit and think about it. I don't want the pressure of having to act a certain way and behave. You know, I just like to dwell on it. That's great. Uh, give me that. But that, that doesn't lead to transformation. And, and so it's hard for me. And, but I think there's, there's no shame in that. I think that God knows that it's hard, and I want to talk a little bit about that. But if you are like me, if you're like me, you have a hard time having personal experiences with God. Like, I can look back on my life, and I can think of maybe two times when I think, I think God was acting there. I think I was experiencing God then. Beyond that, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I've experienced God. It's, it's really hard for me. And this is something that I'm working on. And part of it, I think, is because I don't always trust my experiences. I don't trust my experiences all the time. And, and I'm sure that that's a problem with me. And so I just want to say right now that if you have a hard time experiencing God, it's okay. It's, it's part of the journey. It's a long journey. And 
amen for a church like Woodland Hills where we can have those struggles and it's okay and we can work through that together. A couple things really helped me though and I want to share this. The first one is just the fact that Jesus and the writers of the Old Testament, they know how hard this is and yet they call us to it anyway. My favorite example of this is in John when Thomas is doubting. I mean, he does not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, okay? And he says that, look, I'm not going to believe that it's really Jesus unless I can feel his wounds. And we all know the story. Jesus shows Thomas the wounds. And Thomas touches the wounds and he falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. And I look at that and I think, well, yeah, that's, that's, I'm happy for you, Thomas. I mean, that's great. I would love to be able to drag my bucket of doubts to Jesus and have him just dispel all of those doubts. I mean, I can see that if I were with Thomas and the disciples, and if I were roaming the countryside with Jesus, and if I were out on the boat with Jesus, and if we were sharing a meal together, and I could say, hey, Jesus, pass me the butter, please, and Jesus passes me the butter, man, I could have a personal relationship and experience with that Jesus. That's not what I have. I don't have that. It's so hard. But what helps is that Jesus knows. He knows how hard it is. And he says to Thomas, you don't know how lucky you are. He says to Thomas in chapter 20, verse 29, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And what Jesus is saying right there is that blessed is Dan. Blessed is Paul. Blessed is George. Blessed is Sally. For they do not have the presence that you have and yet they believe. Because it's hard. And you see in the Old Testament, just about every book in the Old Testament, there is a command that repeats in almost every book. And the command is this, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Now the fact that we're told over and over again to seek the Lord, that's like a big red flag saying that it's not easy. You have to keep at it. That's why the command is given over and over and over again. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed, That's sort of like saying, blessed are they who have kept seeking despite the fact that it's so very hard. And that helps me. It helps me so much to persist even though I don't have some of those personal experiences that I really long for. The second part of this is the fact that a relationship is two-directional. We have to know the person of Jesus But Jesus also has to know the person of us. Jesus has to know Dan personally. When Jesus says, I never knew you, well, he knew the people omnisciently. Jesus knew their history. Jesus knew every atom inside of them. He knew the people omnisciently and he knows me omnisciently. But what he wants to know is he wants to know me relationally. That's what he wants to know. 
He wants to know me in relationship. And a relationship is a moment that I participate in. It's a moment that we create together in relationship. And that's something that can only happen and can only be known if I am proactive enough to engage the relationship and put myself out there and express myself to the other person in the relationship. That's what God wants to know me as. He wants to know me in relationship. And that's something that requires me to uh, act on it. Uh, I must be known. I have to pray relationally, not religiously. I have to pray relationally. I have to confess, not religiously, but relationally. Uh, Greg talked last week about uh, Job again, how Job was, was blessed because he spoke straight. He was uh, sincere. That's how the apostolic fathers call it. In fact, in the Shepherd of Hermas, who uh, we talked about a little bit ago, Hermas is a total bumbler and he's a liar and he's a cheat, but the angel blesses him because the Lord said that he was sincere. He didn't deny anything. He was absolutely 100% authentic. He knew what his problems were and he was sincere with God and that's what we need to be also in our times with God. In religion, it's really important to be perfect and obedient to rules. It doesn't really matter how sincere you are. In a religion, all that matters is your obedience. In a relationship, it doesn't matter if you're obeying as long as you're sincere. And we know this in our own relationships. We, we, the people that we love can screw up, uh, but if they are insincere about it, if they're lying about it, that affects the relationship. A lot of times in a relationship, a screw up can actually bring people closer together if sincerity is involved, if there's authenticity. And, and that's the power of relationship and we need that sincerity. And so we need to express ourselves and enter into our relationship with God, not religiously, not theologically, but relationally. We have to express ourselves in a moment of relationship and we have to do that with sincerity. And as I've been thinking about this, first of all, let me confess again, I'm not good at this because I do think of God, I think of the concept of relationship with God, but that's still not me actually being relational with God. And that's the trap because I think I'm being relational because look at how much time I spend thinking about relationship with God. But that's not actually yet the relationship. And as I've been thinking about this and feeling really convicted about this, I've also sensed this feeling of urgency because if it's true that the way is a person, well, this language of way and path, it implies a journey. It implies that this isn't something that happens at the end of the journey. If Jesus is the way, well, then this should start happening now. This should be happening at the beginning, like right now, as soon as possible. Because God wants to know us here as we are. Uh, he wants to know us as we actually are, and he wants to be a part of that journey that gets us to the end. He doesn't want, we're not products, all right? We're people. We can't wait until we're finally happy with ourselves. Now we can go to God. We can't wait until, you know what, I think I'm perfect. Now I'm going to go to God. God doesn't care about that. We're not products. We're people. He wants to know us as we are right now. And that's been very convicting to me. I, I, I've, I've been convicted like I need to be known by, by God as I really am. And so I just want to close with this invitation for you to join me uh, as I try to, one, get to know God as a personal being, not just as a theology, and also to be known by God personally, uh, not just uh, omnisciently. <laughs> uh, and so, 
And this is funny because I, I said this to Greg and Paul last night that this was my goal. And they said, all right, so how are you going to do that? And immediately, my relationship with them, they wanted to see what actions are you going to do. See how relationship just implies action. I wanted to just sit here and contemplate how important it is to set this as a goal. They're like, no, we need specifics. So I spent last night thinking about what I'm going to do. And here's what I came up with. And so if you have other ideas, please share them with me. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're welcome to take these as well. The first uh, one is that um, as I'm reading the Bible and as I'm praying, I want to think of the object or the, the other person in this relationship as a breathing, thinking, relational being, not just as a theology. And I just want to... Uh, accept the reality of that as I imagine God in those situations. The second thing that I plan on doing is, uh, and I, I learned this from Greg's book, Present Perfect. So I encourage you to read that if this is something that is interesting to you. This has probably been the closest to having uh, consistent experiences with God that I've had. And, and he talks in here about just practicing the presence of Jesus. Because the fact is, is the, the, the Bible says that Jesus is with us. And, and even when uh, the language is used about Jesus coming back, the actual Greek there isn't that Jesus is coming back as if he's someplace else. The language that's used there is the word for appears. Jesus will appear. In other words, he's there all the time. He just hasn't appeared yet. And so to live in that reality that Jesus is with me, uh, what I did, and, and this has been the closest I've been, I think, is as I've gone out and done my errands and uh, uh, you know, waited to get a haircut or sat at the coffee shop, I just imagine that Jesus is sitting at the table with me. Maybe he's reading the newspaper. Maybe he's listening to Bob Dylan. I don't know. He's probably listening to Bob Dylan. I, I think that's probably right. So here's what I'm, I'm planning on doing. Friday is my day off, and that's when I run errands. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to imagine that Jesus is running errands with me. The third thing is that I want to look for opportunities of shared moments with God. Uh, like even worship this morning. Just remembering, oh yeah, this isn't just religious singing. This is uh, something that we're doing for God and God is present. And, and just living in that reality more and more and more. So that's what I'm doing. If you have other ideas, please share them with me. Uh, but I encourage you to consider uh, taking this challenge with me. Well, we have some announcements here. Um, if you are coming next week to our service, please let us know that we're coming if you have kids so that we can prepare volunteers for that. Uh, Shauna and I are going to talk more about this sermon uh, on Tuesday on the show that we call The Musecast, and Shauna and I have a good time with that. We have gathering groups, and so please, I've heard just nothing but good things about these gathering groups. If you feel like you want relationships, if you want to work through some of these ideas relationally, man, the gathering group, there's nothing better than that. And then finally, uh, we have, if you need prayers, uh, we take prayer very seriously here in this church, and so we have lots of prayer opportunities for you. If you need prayers and you're in the building, you can come up here and there will be people who will pray with you. If you are online, uh, you can uh, get prayer needs met online as well. And uh, with that, thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's so great to, to seek uh, God together and to learn how to love together. And uh, it's great seeing everybody. And I will see you next, next time. <laughs>